Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mark Bell's Power Project Podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Element Electrolytes. You know, the cool thing is that Mark told me about Element last year. Um, he told me how he was using it before workouts, and he does a lot of workouts fasted too, so he suggested it to me. And in the past, because I do you know a lot of lifting, a lot of you know performance stuff outside the gym, I thought, you know, towards the end of a workout when I'd cramp, it's kind of normal. Maybe I didn't, wasn't adequately hydrated. I didn't have adequate nutrition. So I just drink more water, eat more food, hope everything was okay. And cramping was normal. After I started grabbing Element, I started using the electrolytes and they have thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 potassium, 60 magnesium, all the electrolytes you need. I'd use them pre-workout fasted and I stopped, <clears throat> you not, I don't cramp up anymore. It's crazy. And it's like the workouts all go really well, even though I don't have food in my system. It's really, really crazy. The cool thing about Element is that they have a lot of great flavors. My personal favorite is raspberry. Um, and you can just put a packet in the water, drink it, do your workout. It's easy. It's simple. It's, it's just, it, it it works. Okay. So make sure that you're not just drinking a lot of water to get yourself hydrated. You're getting enough electrolytes in your system before you train. It will make a massive difference to your performance. Yes. You guys got to take your workouts to the next level by picking up some element electrolytes right now. Head over to drinklmnt.com slash power project to make sure you guys check out the bundles because when you buy three, you essentially get one free. I blame the natty professor for everything. Everything makes, makes it easier. Who is that guy? Oh, wait, I have you muted. You switched. Oh, yeah, man, switch. switch. That, that's a vaguely familiar name, the Natty Professor. I don't remember who that is. Mm-hmm. You used to go to this gym, right? You used to train. I here. will always call you Natty Professor. I love that nickname. I think that's great. <laughs> no, I like that nickname, too. Especially because I love the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge fan of the movie. Just saw it not too long ago, too. So We showed Jasmine. She loved it. Still makes me like nearly pee my pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen it in years. It's Eddie Murphy. Oh, he's so good. Right? Yeah. Eddie Murphy's unbelievable. I think we talked about it, but you got to watch his like old school stand up. It's the oh. most vulgar stuff. Oh, you remember it? Yeah. It is the most vulgar stand up. That's uh, where I learned, learned a lot of words <laughs> <laughs> from back in the day. Yeah. From seeing Eddie Murphy raw. Yep. Raw was a good one. He's um I didn't know what he was talking about half the time. Yeah. <laughs> but he has that whole ice cream sketch. Oh yeah, I get my ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's like insanely talented. He like is. when he would make facial expressions or when he would sing or when he would do anything. Mm-hmm. It's like he was like really good at it. It made the whole act that much better. Yeah, and they say that like when he ha- when he hosts like a house party or something or just we has guests over. He'll just sit there in like the living room and just kill it. Like just, he's just, so he's still, still he's, just hilarious. He's like that all and, the time. And, and I guess it's like, well, like, oh, you're bragging that you're the funniest person at a house party. But right. I guess like the people that he's surrounded by, they're right. just like, dude, if he jumps on stage and just does what he does at home, like he'll be the funniest comedian, like, you know, available or out there. Crushing everybody. Yeah. Well, if our comedy shows open again, or are they still doing like the drive-in thing? So in LA, what they're doing is they're just, uh, they're saying, you can come have a dinner, right? And everyone comes to the dinner, but there happens to be somebody with a mic doing comedy. <laughs> That's legit what they're doing in LA because comedy still isn't allowed. So mm. it's like, come, come, come to this place, come to this spot and have we'll a have dinner. a dinner, this comedy club and have a dinner because they can't market it as a comedy show. Hmm. Ways around the road. They have to like make it sound weird or whatever, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Today will be interesting. Uh, we got... Um, 
a guy named Dan on the show. I'm not sure how to say his last name. How do <laughs> we? Either. How do we tackle that last <laughs> That's name? A tough one. Zavrotny. Yeah, there we go. Oh, that, was, that probably is not right at all. I probably go put a little it. bit too much. <laughs> um, he's somebody I got in touch with through um, through some of our carnivore friends, mm-hmm. and he has a um, continued glucose monitor um, uh, machine that he uh, helps promote and sells and stuff. But um, when I got on the phone with him and I was talking to him about that kind of shortly, he was saying like, Hey, you know, all these things that we think are true that like spike our, our glucose and do all these things. He's like, it's only true to a certain extent. And he's like, and I can't tell you what it's going to do when you try it out. I can't tell somebody else what it's going to do when they try it out. He's like, for some people, blueberries will spike their uh, glucose levels through the roof. For another person, you won't see it a blip at all. Some people uh, will have whey protein and they might see a spike in their glucose. And so it was just interesting. And then, you know, what does it mean to like spike your glucose? And is it even, is it bad? Is it good? Um, it's probably somewhere in between. It's probably good sometimes and probably not great to do all the time. As we see with the standard American diet, people's glucose and insulin levels are uh, through the roof and, and something that doesn't really get brought up enough. And I, I got to credit Lane Norton for mentioning this. Everyone's against carbs all the time. Not everyone, but you hear people say stuff about carbs, but most of the things that we're referring to that, ha- that have carbohydrates in them in excessive amounts, a lot of times they are accompanied by more fat calories than they have carbohydrate calories. So mm-hmm. something like a big Mac or something like that, French fries would be like a good example where you're, the amount of fat calories is the amount of calories overall is just too much to overcome. It's not necessarily the fact that it has carbs in it that makes it bad. I mean, it's not helpful. <laughs> it's not necessarily helpful at that point, but it's just that you ate way too much. Mm-hmm. And we've had other guests on the show before. Um, John, is it John Heck that helps out? Um, Jessica and Smokey. Uh, yeah. Yeah. With, what the heck? Yeah. Yeah. With diet and stuff like that. And I think that he's got a pretty damn good uh, grasp of things when he tells people to carb up. He's like, you can carb up and you can kind of eat what you want, but it has to have under 10 grams of fat per meal. And it's like, oh, shit, that messes me up because now <laughs> now what are my options? You can still find some good stuff. You can get creative with it and have some like Rice Krispie treats and stuff like that. But it does make it tough. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. It really does. <laughs> Here we go. Hello. Hi. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and uh, helping us get to the bottom of some of this uh, glucose type stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Cool. Looks like Dan's joining right now. There he is. Hey, how's it going? Great. Great to have both of you guys on the show. Would you guys mind kind of just uh, to kind of kick things off here, just kind of uh, talk about the company that you guys are, are working with and uh, maybe how you got into it? Sure. I'd love to. Uh, my name is Dan Zavarotny. I actually come from a background of healthcare consulting where I was consulting some of the major health insurance companies in the U.S., medical device manufacturers, as well as hospitals. And the goal was to basically figure out how to optimize profitability for these organizations. Um, I quickly realized that there is a very negative correlation between profit of these organizations and actual patient outcomes. A lot of times what, you know, hospitals are doing the best are not the ones that are providing the most value. Uh, I try to figure out how do we change this? And I came across these devices called continuous glucose monitors. 
these devices that you put in your in your arm and they track your glucose in real time. And this helps you really understand how your metabolic flexibility is and how your body responds to different things like stress, food, sleep, and exercise. And it helps us truly understand how to take preventative measures in our health. Uh, and, you know, me and Kara partner up and we have another person on our team who helped us really figure out how do we streamline this and bring to the masses. Very cool. Yeah. Karen? So, yeah, so I'm Kara. I'm a registered dietitian and I came from the clinical world. So I was working in the hospitals, mostly in ICUs throughout the country, and also quickly realized that most of the people coming into the ICUs were not there because of trauma or a gunshot wound, but they're there because of complications of a lifestyle-related disease. And it was just a pattern over and over, and it was really frustrating because I couldn't actually make the meaningful change I was hoping to make in the current healthcare system. So partnered up with Dan, and then we're using these continuous glucose monitors, as he mentioned, for the masses and not just diabetics like they're traditionally used, because we believe being able to see what's happening inside of your body at all times is, is really the key to preventing getting into the ICU and having these chronic conditions. Do we see some major differences between men and women when it comes to how they respond to, uh, I guess, certain macronutrients, certain foods? Yeah, there are big gender differences, definitely. Um, the biggest is with carbohydrates. So women, on average, tend to be less carbohydrate sensitive than men. Uh, this could be due to a wide variety of factors. One is that the more muscle mass you have, the more carbohydrate sensitive you tend to be because you have more glucose storage space. So glycogen is a glucose storage space, and that can be put either in your liver, which only has so much room, or your skeletal muscle, which has a lot more potential space. And men, on average, tend to have more muscle mass than women. And that's one potential reason that women tend to be less carbohydrate sensitive and just have higher glucose spikes to the same amount of carbohydrates. The other is just hormonal changes that women experience that men aren't traditionally experiencing. So it's very common for during, you know, regular monthly menstrual cycle to have significantly higher glucose values in those last two weeks during what's the luteal phase. So this is just due to the shift in hormones. So when you have lower estrogen levels, you're not as insulin sensitive and women might have average glucose values 10 to 20 points higher, especially to carbohydrates, but to all foods, just because of the shifts in hormones. So we see big differences between men and women. Of course, at the end of the day, it's all personalized. Some women might not really see this effect as much as other women, but there's, there's definitely gender differences. But what about just like flat out stress? Like, uh, I guess it'd be hard to maybe have a direct correlation, but we know the impact of sleep and we can get into that a little bit later. But, um, what about just stress in general? Just like if we're more stressed, do we tolerate carbohydrates differently? Yeah, absolutely. So when thinking about the connection between glucose and stress, we think about just our natural stress response. So what's happening in this moment when we have acute or chronic stress is that we're triggering certain hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and this stimulates the liver to create more glucose and it also dampens our response to insulin so that that glucose is available to fuel our stressor so normally from like an evolutionary perspective 
when we're under acute stress, it's because we need extra energy to fuel that stress. So it's like you're getting chased by something and you need extra glucose. But unfortunately, in modern environments, these acute stressors that we're facing, we don't usually need extra glucose. So if you're swamped at work or fighting with your partner or, you know, doing in a traffic jam, whatever stressor, you don't need this extra glucose. And so it stays circulating in the system. And then if we eat a big meal while we're in the stress state or even eat a small amount of carbohydrates, we're going to see an exacerbated glucose response. This is almost with everybody we see this. And even if you're not eating, you might see this giant glucose spike to that acute stress moment. And so this is probably the one thing we're talking about the most with our clients actually is the impact of stress. You know, I think right now in the times we're in, a lot of people are under more stress than normal, but I also think we're just a um, culture of chronic stress overworking. Um, so it's something we're talking about all the time because it tends to also be the driver that's increasing our fasting glucose values. So if you think about glucose, when you wake up in the morning or while you're sleeping, What's driving that traditionally is normal homeostasis in the liver. So the liver is like, you need more glucose, you need less glucose. They're regulating that because you're not eating. It's not coming from food. And so if glucose is high in a fasted state, it's almost always that we can point back to cortisol because it's driving that glucose production in the liver. So if somebody's waking up with a, a fasting glucose value of 110, which would be considered like pre-diabetic, diabetic levels, first thing we want to ask about is, is stress. And, you know, are you under this cortisol response? And so it's a major factor that can impact our glucose. And I think an important point to mention here is a lot of times we're so used to being stressed, chronic stress, we don't realize that something's wrong because it become part of our norm. So, you know, you do something for 20 years, you think it's normal. And only until, until you see objectively a number that is given to your body and you know this is not right, then you realize, okay, this is not how I'm supposed to feel. And then when you start working out and figuring out how to improve your stress response and lower that down, and you start seeing this new pattern of behavior that lowers the glucose and you start seeing, okay, wait, I feel very different now. And people will do 20, 30 years of certain life and then they change certain habits and then instantly they realize, wow, this is such a different feeling that I'm getting. I can't believe I could feel this way, which is fascinating. You know, let's dig into this a little bit more. I'm actually uh, curious about that because, Kara, I saw you post on your Instagram about like you had um, your continuous glucose monitor and it you, you had a it track when you were sleeping and your your glucose was high when you were asleep on one day. Right. And then on another, on another day when you weren't as stressed, you were you saw like a dip when you were asleep and then it came up through the day like it usually should. So. I'm curious, what habits do you guys have individuals apply if they are facing a lot of lifestyle stress? Yeah, that's a great question. So it depends on the person. Some people respond very well to like a traditional meditation. And so maybe if they're just getting started, we might recommend a few like apps like Headspace or um some of the similar apps that somebody can use to get started, but there's always people who meditation just doesn't click with them. They're having a hard time sticking with that. So instead, what we like to talk about is just dealing with stress in the moment. And so you can do a few things. Um, one is to literally visualize your physical trigger points. So often when we're stressed, 
We can feel it in our face, our chest, and our stomach. And so if you can visualize like you're having a stress moment, like, you know, you can tell like I'm getting worked up at work or, you know, in your car and your stress, you can physically relax your face and physically relax your chest and then like let your belly out is what we say. Like just breathe and physically relax that. And that trains that vagus nerve to relax. And so sometimes connecting those physical moments to the harder to quantify things like stress can help a lot of people. So we talk about just going through that five second checklist of those three areas and relaxing that. And the other big one that helps for people who are having a hard time sticking with meditation is breathing exercises. So a common one is four, seven, eight. So you breathe in for a count of four, hold for a count of seven, and then breathe out at a count of eight. And that unique breathing pattern is helps to train that parasympathetic system as well and also strengthen our diaphragm. So just like we train other muscles, we rarely train our diaphragm, which is what helps dictate breathing and oxygenation. And so we talk about for people who are maybe more in like the fitness crowd and they're having a hard time resonating with dealing with stress, we talk about training that diaphragm muscle and that breathing technique throughout the day really helps to strengthen that and also put us in a calmer state. I think a good visual for that is uh, when a child is really, really like overly upset and they can't talk and they're trying to tell you what happened to them and they're, they, they keep going, <gasps> they keep doing that. And it's all, but like, we're doing that kind of on the daily, just not even maybe recognizing it. And something I've heard other people mention in terms of the style of breathing that you're searching for is like an alligator breathing. You know, you've seen, you've seen the alligator like expand and, and, and contract and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so that's, that's uh, what we're after. And that's what we're trying to work on. And it can be, can be a difficult thing to work on, but if you can kind of remember to get back to your breath here and there, I've, I've found it to be uh, really helpful. Another good example is a dog. You know, sometimes a dog will just like lay down and they go, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and they just kind of naturally let out it's a good natural, sigh. Yeah. And we'll, we do it as well, but we probably don't take the time to do it uh, maybe as much as we need to. I love what you guys are talking about here because I think that it's about optimization. You know, it's about trying to be more optimal and even, even athletes and even people that are trying to be healthy. Um, we're really just, it's a lot of guesswork. You know, you look lean, you look in shape, uh, but we don't know what's going on in the inside and we don't know how stressed you are or you aren't. Um, with the amount of people that you guys have run through uh, with this continued glucose monitoring, um, what are some things that were maybe shocking that you found where you're like, whoa, like I just didn't know that we were going to, obviously with some heavier people and some things like that, it would be fairly clear that, um, that they would uh, maybe have some bad eating habits and some bad lifestyle habits that led them to have, you know, high glucose levels throughout the day that maybe uh, led to disease and led to some other things. But what were some things that maybe you guys were like, I never expected some of this stuff to be happening like this? Yeah, I would say one of the big ones is just how unique our glucose responses can be just between each other. So we, you know, if you think about the glycemic index, it's supposed to predict that something like white rice is going to have a higher glucose spike than something like, you know, sweet potatoes. And it's this varying scale of how much is your glucose going to spike in response to a carbohydrate. 
And that's taken in the general population and then it's averaged into the scale. And something we realized very quickly is that everyone's not following in that average. And what might be a low glycemic index vegetable or fruit for you could be totally high for somebody else. So we have these very, very unique responses to food. I mean, just as an example between Dan and I, like when Dan first started and we were trying to clean up his diet a little bit, he was eating like two bananas in the morning and having spikes into the 200s, which is like diabetic levels just from a banana. But when I eat a banana, it's my lowest glucose spike of all fruits. So I only move about 10 points where something like um, an apple is almost double that. I've tried just about every fruit just to see how I respond and it's all different than everybody else. And so this has been really interesting to me because as a dietitian, before I started actually measuring this, I was, you know, eating mostly starchy vegetables as my carbohydrates and like quinoa was my grain that I was using most of the time. And those two happen to be the vegetables and grains that spike me the most. So I actually have a lower glucose response to white rice in comparison to quinoa. And then with starchy vegetables, they pretty much all give me much higher spikes than any grain or fruits or legumes. So I just stay away from starchy vegetables for the most part, unless it's like a special occasion, you know, there's always room for wiggling around in that. But that's one of the big things where it's just been such a surprise where people are like not expecting to have a certain response that they're having because it's not matching up with our expectations and what we're putting out there. So almost everyone's going to have a spike from something like soda, you know, or a cookie. But when it comes to whole food carbohydrate sources, it's really unique and it's going to be a flip of the coin of how you might respond. So that to me is one of those things that you don't realize until you actually start seeing real data from so many people. That was a huge surprise. I thought coffee was really interesting too. We've seen people drink coffee and some people glucose goes up. Some people doesn't affect at all. Some people actually increase or decrease glucose. So their glucose gets better drinking coffee and you just can't predict that. Right. It's a, we just have this weird tolerance to coffee and all of us are completely unique. I was completely shocked when I'd seen this kind of data. And it's really 33% across the spectrum of how it affects you. You know, I think some yeah. people, I'm really curious about this because some people are probably listening and they're wondering, why do I really need to care about what's going on with my glucose? Like, this is really cool, but if it goes up and it goes down, why am I concerned? And I think that, like, can you help us clear that up a little bit? Yeah, Absolutely. So there's quite a few reasons um, why we might want to care. But one is that glucose is very predictive of potential insulin resistance. And so 88% of the population are estimated to have suboptimal metabolic health and at risk for insulin resistance. So pretty much everybody is potentially at risk or has some metabolic dysfunction. And one of the best ways to catch this really early is with this continuous glucose data, because something like at a, you know, if you go to the doctor and you get a fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C, that's just giving you a little bit of information, just what's happening in the fasted state or your average glucose. And they're very lagging indicators of insulin resistance. You know, there's research that it's almost 10 to 20 years of damage going on in the background before those lab values start to become abnormal. But we can catch that very easily on something like a CGM by seeing how high you're spiking, what it looks like when you're sleeping. 
So the first reason is that it's a very early indicator for insulin resistance, which is tied to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, dementia, you know, chronic kidney disease, basically all of your chronic conditions have a link to insulin resistance. Um, the other thing is before insulin resistance even comes into the picture, we can think about what's happening on a zoomed in view when our glucose levels go higher. So every time we have a big glucose spike, even if it's coming back down to normal and we're insulin sensitive, this is putting stress on our mitochondria because these are the batteries that have to process all this energy coming in. And when we have a big glucose load coming in and the mitochondria have to deal with all of this, it works overtime essentially. And what happens is when it's working overtime to deal with this glucose spike, it's producing free radicals and oxidative damage and some background inflammation in order to deal with that glucose spike. And so, you know, if we're having repetitive glucose spikes, then we're building up oxidative damage and inflammation, and this can impair recovery, and this can dampen our immune response, and this can lead to a whole host of unwanted consequences because you're in this chronic inflammation state. So each of these spikes is causing those problems, even if you're not insulin resistant, and they're the glucose spikes are also damaging the blood vessels. So if you think about it, the body likes to keep glucose in a very tight range. And when it goes above that, it's this concept of glucotoxicity, where too much glucose in the bloodstream, even for a short amount of time, is toxic to those blood vessels. So it can cause damage to the cells that line our blood vessels, which again, stimulates this inflammatory process as different inflammatory cytokines have to clean up the damage. And if that's repeated over and over, that's when we get things like atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So if we're looking at that zoomed in level, it's all about inflammation and disease risk. Yeah. And I think one thing I'll throw in there, one, and if we look at even micro scale, like now, it's really, if you're able to control your glucose at a certain level, you can immediately see improvements in your sleep quality. Uh, as well as energy levels. A lot of times we we have these energy boosts and then we have this crash, whether it's during lunch or in evenings after big dinner. And then we feel like we didn't sleep well. The moment you're able to figure this out, dramatically your sleep increases. And this isn't like one of those things where it takes months to figure out. But you do this and within a day or two, things improve, uh, which is fascinating, right? Uh, those are kind of things that I've noticed improvements immediately. And I've, that's what I started changing the way not only what I eat, but also the wind, time window of when I eat it, when I eat what, um, and after the, the, like, do I eat protein first or do I eat carb first or what is the process? Do I eat before workout or after workout? Timing that out has been very helpful for me. So this must be uh, yeah. why we've heard, we've had hundreds of guests on this show. We've talked to many, many people that are very intelligent when it comes to nutrition. Um, and we've had some of them swear by the fact that, a nice uh, amount of carbohydrates before bed helped them sleep. We've had other people say that they shut down eating three or four hours before they go to bed. We've had other people say, you know, after, I don't know, 4 p.m. or so, they just don't eat carbohydrates to try to keep their uh, blood sugar levels, um, I guess, uh, 
you know, uh, moderate. And so this must be part of the reason why is there's such variation in between each individual. Because when we're on the where you know, we're like, well, which one is it? You know, do you eat carbs, do you not eat carbs? And it's probably just depends, right? Yeah, absolutely. It depends. It's really personal. And it's something we've noticed with sleep is I would say a maybe a majority do better with no carbohydrates in the evening and cutting that eating window earlier. Cause a lot of people will see either that bigger dinner meal or carbohydrates in the evening will lead to higher glucose values while they're sleeping and impaired deep sleep. So a lot of our customers are also wearing like aura rings or sleep trackers and they can correlate that data. And we're seeing when I have that big carb meal, I'm not sleeping as well. And that's fairly common, but then there's also maybe a quarter of people where it's the total opposite and what's happening for them usually is that they're actually getting a little hypoglycemic while they're sleeping. And we can see that in their data. They're getting into, you know, levels of 50 and 60, and then they're waking up and they're not feeling rested. And one of the best ways is like, let's try a little bit of carbohydrates before you go to bed. And then it's stable and they're sleeping like a baby. So there's many different reasons that you might have those dips while you're sleeping and sometimes carbs fix it. And sometimes, you know, it's a deeper reason and we have to look at like thyroid and all these other factors that can affect your hypoglycemia, but you can at least identify that with the CGM. And, and often it's as simple as eating some carbohydrates at dinner that helps these people. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So the folks you're talking about, these people sometimes take months or years to figure this out. Like what works for them here within a day or two, you could see it, uh, which is fascinating. It's just the speed. It, it's really a speed of figuring out what works. It doesn't work for you, right? So if yeah, it's all about building that that refinement process faster. Like you're always experimenting with diet and things that work. You can speed that up in in much faster time. Yeah. So if somebody does learn and they identify some of the foods that don't cause an insulin spike, is that sort of a way to kind of hack their diet to eat more of those foods, or does it always come back to the amount of calories that they're intaking for the entire day or even week uh, in regards to either maintaining weight or losing weight? Yeah, it's not just about calories. We'll definitely see like you might have a food that you respond really well to, but if you eat 2000 calories of it, you might still have a spike, but there's going to be these foods that you respond better to. And then you can lean towards more of those foods and less of the foods that are giving you a spike and then meet, you know, your calorie needs with those foods that work better for you. Or, you know, maybe you're in a calorie deficit or maybe you're surplus for whatever your goals are, but you can adjust those types of foods based on what you're responding better to. That makes sense. Yeah, and when it comes to things like insulin resistance, it's going to be compounded by eating too much food. But normally, um, the foods that you eat under normal circumstances, I understand we're also talking about uh, things spiking your glucose levels that are kind of unexpected, you know. But for your average person, you know, they're not really worried about broccoli, you know, (laughs) having a (laughs) massive negative impact on their uh, nutrition, right? and so I think what happens is over a period of time, you know, you have these foods that are kind of offensive to your metabolism. They're throwing a nice monkey wrench into everything that you're trying to do. And your your insulin resistance starts to build up. Your body is supposed to make insulin when you have a glucose spike. You have a uh, surplus of carbohydrates and your body's like, yo, we need to figure out what to do with this extra energy. 
And so therefore to kind of counteract that, um, and you guys can correct me if I'm off on any of this, but you know, to counteract that your insulin levels will go up, but over a period of time, when you do that over and over again, you start to actually, your cells become resistant to that insulin and you producing the same amount of insulin doesn't have the same impact as it did when you were young. Maybe when you were young, you could slurp down, you know, a, a big Slurpee from Seven Eleven and have, you know, 100 grams of sugar and have it have almost zero impact. As we get older, the metabolism, quote unquote, slows down and that will have a negative impact. And the it, insulin uh, helps to kind of store glycogen. Insulin kind of helps to regulate where these where this extra energy is going to go. But at a certain point, the body becomes uh, basically kind of toxic with the amount of energy that you're taking in. It says, hey, uh, we checked all the storage. <laughs> There's really nowhere else for us to put anything. You, we, we've cranked up the insulin as much as we possibly could. There's nothing left to do there. And now it's just going to end up in your fat cells or it's going to end up uh, in calcification of the of the heart or it's going to end up somewhere this extra energy is going to go somewhere you know because matter can neither be created nor destroyed so it's got to it's got to do something and it usually ends up uh being bad news yeah that's exactly right and i always describe insulin resistance as like the boy who cried wolf so (laughs) insulin is always yelling it's like oh we've got tons of glucose like we need to do something about this And if you just cry every once in a while the cells are like okay i'll respond to that and do what i need to do but if you're crying all day long like stop it like and they start to resist the effects of that signal because what hormones are insulin is a hormone is they're trying to produce signals and they're communicating all the different parts of the body to work together and so they start to ignore that message because they're hearing it all the time and like along with what you said insulin is an anabolic hormone sometimes people call it anti-catabolic and is that maybe it's helping to prevent muscle breakdown or, you know, prevent fat breakdown, but at the end of the day, it's helping for growth activities. And so Mm -hmm. for always having this insulin circulating because the cells no longer are responding to it, it's figuring out where it can put these different growth patterns. And a lot of times that's fat accumulation in the wrong areas, which is where we don't want, or it's a difficult time tapping into those fat stores. We always have glucose high. We always have insulin high. The body never needs to go into our long-term energy stores, which is fat, because it's got immediate energy available. So it's this idea of oxidative priority. We're going to use the quick, easy energy first. So if you have high levels circulating glucose, I'm going to use that because it's really easy to tap into. Um, I always compare like glucose and fat as our energy sources as like money in a wallet versus a bank. If you have money in a wallet, quick to access, really easy to get out, but there's only so much room. And that's like glucose where the bank is like your fat stores. You can store infinite amount of fat, but it's harder to tap into. So if you always have this glucose present, never going to need to go to the bank because I always have some immediate energy available. I think something that makes some of this frustrating sometimes is we just hear so many different things from so many different resources. And I think everybody's well-meaning. I think everybody wants it, wishes that everyone to be healthier everyone to be more fit, everyone to be in better shape. But when you mention that only 12% of the population kind of has full access to what their metabolism is supposed to do, that leads me to believe that the calories in, calories out thing gets a little skewed, uh, at least, at the very least, gets a little bit skewed because 
these people, their body is not functioning the way that it's supposed to. And so calories in, calories out may work great for you, may work great for me. Um, but for people that aren't exercising, that aren't out in front of it, their body is damaged. It's not working correctly. And they're going to have to probably figure out something a little different. They're probably going to have to figure out uh, what are the main problems here other than just overeating. Because it probably started with overeating. But as we know, when people gain more and more body fat, uh, their metabolism seems to be slower and slower. And for the amount of calories that they have to start to reduce ends up being so great that they're so hungry all the time that it gets to be really difficult for them to kind of follow on a path like that. Like, I'm not going to say that the calories don't matter, but it seems to it seems to maybe be that they are more accurate of an account for some and less accurate of an account for others. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I would agree exactly with what you said, that calories in, calories out works really well in an insulin-sensitive person. So probably somebody like you, somebody like me, like I can follow calories in, calories out, and I'm going to be okay. I might still be having some glucose spikes, and that that might cause some downstream effects eventually. Um, And then I might become insulin-resistant, and then maybe calories in, calories out doesn't work as well. So many times if somebody is insulin resistant, the first thing we need to do is remove some of those carbohydrates. I don't inherently believe that carbohydrates cause insulin resistance, but if it's there, I think we need to remove it or at least reduce it significantly in order for you to start retraining your metabolic system and using alternative fuel sources like ketones or something besides glucose 24 seven. So In an insulin resistant state, we have to really tweak macros and make sure you're not adding more glucose into the system with things like stress and sleep. I've seen many people where we just address stress and sleep and then they start losing weight and we didn't adjust calories at all Mm -hmm. because they're always in this fight or flight. They're always in elevated glucose levels because they're constantly stressed. And so sometimes it has nothing to do with the nutrition at all or how much you're eating and it has to do with hormones or all these other effects that could be going on. So it's never as simple as just like one solution for anything. And that's when, you know, I do think people are well-intended in their recommendations, but whenever I hear someone say like, this is the one thing that will fix insulin resistance or the one thing that will make you, you know, skinny, it's like, that's just not how it works. Our bodies are so complex. Like that's an immediate red flag moment of it's, it's just, it's never one thing. It's always more complicated than that which I know is not like the sexy thing and it doesn't sell as well, but it's just the truth is that our our bodies are complex and they're also adaptable. So if we have something wrong going on, it's going to have all these other effects that affect all of our different systems. So it's never just one thing, but calories in calories out certainly can work if you're insulin sensitive, but many people are not, which is the problem. And I think an important thing to mention as well is we always talk about carbs are simple sugars as increasing your glucose. There are people who consume extreme, uh, very strong diets with protein, and protein can also convert to glucose mm-hmm. in the body. And Kara can kind of talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, so there's there's definitely people where they're not consuming any carbohydrates at all, but they might have a glucose spike to a really high protein meal. And so this is the idea that we don't really have an energy storage form of protein it's going to muscle synthesis you know enzyme creation all these other functions but 
we have a certain cap at how much we can take before then it's converted to other usable energy sources like glucose or fat. And so sometimes, you know, if people are just eating one meal a day and they're doing keto or just carnivore, then they might sit down and have 36 ounces of steak for dinner and we see a glucose spike because a I lot like of that. the protein <laughs> is getting converted. Is that my <laughs> Which is not inherently a bad thing. You know, it's just that it's getting transferred into a way that we can actually store that energy. You know, it's going to glucose and then maybe that's used for energy or stored that as glycogen. Um, it's not inherently a bad thing as long as eventually you're using that energy and you're still maintaining and it's not just added on top of everything you're already doing so it can get converted into glucose though and we can see a glucose bump from something just like protein we rarely see it just from fat um fat rarely stimulates a glucose response but see it more often with protein is it true that um pro um the gluconeogenesis uh the protein turning into sugar is uh only driven by need and not necessarily by supply or what are your thoughts on that? I think so it could so be for both. just just an example, I like think. if you were to eat a hundred grams of protein, um the theory is that that doesn't necessarily convert into sugar unless the body actually needs dietary sugar or needs uh sugar for the body. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. Like if you are competing and you're burning through a bunch of, you know, muscle breakdown and you need extra muscle synthesis and you eat hundred grams of protein, you might see no glucose response at all. Cause all of that is going to muscle synthesis. And so it does depend on, you know, need and what's going on inside of the body. It's not, we hit this beast. I think there used to be like old rules out there that was like, you can only have like 30 grams of protein at a meal before your body just can't do anything with it. And again, that's research that was done on a population level most people aren't really working out that much. And so for most people, maybe 30 grams of protein is all they really need at a meal in order to fuel these different protein needs. And so if you're somebody who is bodybuilding or training, you could probably tolerate a lot more than 30 grams and have that actually go to protein use and not need to be transferred to glucose. So the exact number is going to be probably hard to figure out, but you can at least see it on a glucose meter and see maybe I'm getting a spike probably wasn't using all of that protein just for protein synthesis. And some of it's going to be transferred into glucose. You know, I'd like to backtrack a little bit real quick because there's something that I was curious about when you were talking about how everybody has different responses to different types of food, um, like coffee, blueberries, etc. With the amount of people that you guys have used the glucose monitors on, have you noticed any trend in terms of potentially different types of races being uh, sensitive to certain things. Like I'm just wondering about like people that are descended from different areas of the world. Is there any trend there? And then also there's something that I've seen. It's catching fire a little bit with people doing these blood type diets, right? There's like, there's a book like eat right for your blood type. Mm. And I haven't done any like looking into it, but it just sounds a little bit off to me. But since you guys may have some of this data, have you noticed maybe anything when it comes to an individual's blood type and their glucose response to certain types of foods? Yeah, I haven't. We're not asking people their blood type, but maybe we'll start doing it just to see if there's a correlation there. That's really interesting. Mm. But I have researched this to see 
what how much legitimacy there is around the blood type diet and i haven't found it to be very legitimate so i'm not convinced there's a connection there but you never know i'm always open to there might be a connection we never know science is always changing mm -hmm. so we're not gathering that from our customers which would be interesting to know nonetheless but related to like ethnicity or background there's certainly different like specifically southeast asians tend to be more susceptible to insulin resistance so we have seen this where just in general not as carbohydrate tolerant which which is interesting so specifically like india like malaysia philippines that area tends to be for whatever reason genetics more susceptible to insulin resistance and not as carbohydrate sensitive i haven't noticed specific discrepancies between like very specific foods like blueberries not doing well for one type of person um that would be really interesting but i haven't noticed to that level of granularity um i it's my understanding that um americans have a pretty high like maximum fat threshold it's called <laughs> which is kind of a funny a funny term um and that, that might explain why some other ethnicities end up with um diabetes maybe faster um, than than others because like in, in America people can get pretty darn big uh, before they really run into some massive problems and then it seems like in other cultures even though they're smaller their body fat percentage is kind of high they don't weigh a lot but they're gonna they're running into some issues um, maybe earlier than than you would suspect something that I noticed is that it seems that most things boil down to not necessarily just the race. I'm sure the race and the genetics are probably a, a major factor in a lot of this, but the environment seems to be the the thing that really uh, pulls and pushes everything. You know, I think the the actual foods that you consume and your behaviors from the time you're a kid and seeing what mom and dad do. Maybe mom and dad are always outside. Maybe they're always doing something and maybe you're getting sunlight. Maybe you're getting vitamin D and maybe when you're young, you play a sport and so on. And I think all these things are just, I think they'll outweigh the genetics in the long run because what you do on a daily basis, um, I think is probably just a larger factor in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like genetics are not your destiny at all. They might predispose you to something, but for these chronic conditions, it's never that that genetic predisposition is going to mean you're going to end up with diabetes or Alzheimer's. Um, I think environment plays a much more crucial role and also epigenetics. So the things that your parents were doing is going to have an effect on you then. So we have lots of people who are also doing their genetic tests and coming to us and like I'm predisposed for diabetes. So I'm really, really concerned, but they're doing everything right. And it looks amazing and they're going to be okay. Like that person is not necessarily going to get diabetes just because they're at risk. But that does mean that maybe you want to pay more attention to the things you're doing. Um, I don't know how much you guys have talked about the APOE gene on your show, but that's a very common genetic snip that a lot of people are worried about. Essentially like APOE is a, uh, fat taxis. So it taxis around fat in our bloodstream. And we have three different genetic variants to it. You can have an APOE2, 3, or 4. And you get two. You get one from your mom and you get one from your dad. So you could have APOE44, APOE34, you know, two different combinations. And it turns out that APOE4 puts you at significant risk for 
neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, and then also cardiovascular disease. So this huge bucket of increased risk. And a lot of people are very concerned about this. And I happen to be an ApoE 4.4, which is why I'm so interested in this topic. But 30% of the population have at least one four, and then only about like 2% of the population have two fours. But if you have this genetic risk, you're at a 20% increased risk of having Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease. But what dug into this research very deep and the number one thing you can do to compensate for this genetic predisposition is preventing insulin resistance and doing all of the things that we're talking about. And then these people don't get dementia. They don't get Alzheimer's. And so there's lots of things you can do. And I'm 100% confident that lifestyle and environment is the most important thing you can do, especially if you're at a genetic risk. So if you have a family history of disease or you have some of these genetic SNPs, it's more important for you to do certain lifestyle behaviors and take care of yourself as opposed to somebody who just wins like the genetic lottery. And, you know, there's always the examples of people who live to 120 and they smoke every day, (laughs) you know, they're eating like candy every day. They just won the genetic lottery, like their (laughs) lifestyle decisions don't make as much of an impact. They're lucky. But for people who have predisposition, you need to be more mindful about these lifestyle decisions because they play a huge role for everybody. Tell us a little bit more about the uh, glucose monitor itself. And um, like we didn't really talk about it a whole lot in the beginning. Like um, what, what kind of feedback is it giving you? Is it giving you anything else other than just the glucose? And then how are you guys... Um, how are you guys making plans for people moving forward once you start to gain some of that data? Yeah. So the glucose monitor is like a little disc and it goes on the back of your arm. Um, I like to describe the application as like an easy button. You do it at home and it comes in this little applicator and you just push the button like an easy button. And then it's in the back of your arm. And it stays there for two full weeks. So for two full weeks, you get 24-7 glucose data. It's actually in your your arm, right? It's actually in your arm? Yes. So it's in your arm. So there is a small, I know you're (laughs) looking scared, but I promise you it doesn't hurt. There's a small needle for insertion, like when you're putting it on, but the needle doesn't stay in your arm. It's just to secure it. And there's this little microfilament that goes just below the surface of the skin. So it's not even going to the depth of blood. It's just right below the skin level. And then there's an adhesive that makes it like stick there. Um, So it's very, very painless. Um, If you ever check your glucose on like a glucometer, that hurts much more. (laughs) And so it just stays there. You can shower with it, work out with it to do all your normal activities. And it just stays on. And then the device itself is only measuring glucose. And so um, with the app, you can scan the device and see your glucose for, you know, the whole day. You wake up, scan it, see what happened while you were sleeping, getting this 24-7 data. And then with our app, we're also allowing you to combine other metrics to get a more holistic view of your health. So um, we do automatic sync with KetoMojo from their ketone data. So if you're using that keto monitor, it goes right to our device. Um, You can do nutrition macro tracker to see and compare. If you're tweaking macros, how is that affecting glucose statistics? Mm -hmm. And then you can also, we do automatic sync with like Apple Watch and different um, activity levels. So that data is just going right in there and you can compare your exercise to your glucose. Then you can log things like stress and sleep. 
So right now we're allowing people to log or automatically sync these other metrics to get a holistic view of what's going on. But the device itself is just measuring glucose. But really our future goal is to be a metabolic health company. So we want to have other lab work available in the, in the app that you can easily measure um, order from home type of labs and have it all in that database. So you can compare everything in one localized place. And then this is where we are now. In the future, there are sensors right now in test that will come out in the near future, hope dependent on FDA regulation, but uh, approval process. But they will t- track not just glucose, but also ketones and lactic acid. So I think that gets super interesting when it comes to athletic performance or trying to build muscle faster and recovery, having a data in real time all the time. You, know, you go to the gym and you'll be able to figure out, hey, should I keep working out or should I stop? Because right now, you, you know, you kind of stop because you think you're done or and maybe you should have kept going longer or you should have stopped earlier. Uh, but you don't know. You're just guessing. Right. But having that data will help. It just takes a little bit of while for the, you know, the government FDA to catch up to the technology. Um, I was looking at your website and it showed that you have to get it replaced every two weeks or am I tripping about that? Yeah, so the devices are like a one-time use. So you you have it in there for two weeks at a time, and then you pull it off just like a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to continue, we offer two different options. So one is just the one CGM for 14 days, no commitment. If you're just wanting to like double check, a, you know, your meal plans and make sure it's where you're at, tweak a few things, then it's just the two weeks. But if you sign up for our monthly subscription, you'll get two sensors every month. So once the one ends, you just put the next one on and you can keep going. So what is the need? I'm just curious. What's the need for the constant replacement of devices? Like, is there any way that you could make a device that you can just leave in there for a long period of time until you yeah. want it removed? Or? That's, a, that's a great question. Um, so it's just mostly about FDA regulation. Uh, uh, these devices used to last one day. They became four, seven, 10. Now they're 14. And over time, they're going to get longer and longer. So it'll get to 60, 90 days. But it just takes time. They have to constantly go through the approval process to get approved by the FDA, make sure it's okay, and then then the life can extend. Uh, because it's actually not the device that dies, it's the battery inside that's automatically turned off on purpose mm. uh, from the legal perspective. Uh, but they will get better. There are some people who get injectables. <laughs> like you actually go to a doctor, they inject in you, and it gets anywhere from 6 to uh, 12 months. That's a little bit too much, even for me, and I love this kind of stuff. Uh, so I'm assuming most people don't want that. Um, so there are those options, but uh, that's, I think, taking the next level. And it's probably few and far between. We're more excited about the ones that are even more on top of the skin that more measure sweat levels. That's kind of the future going where it doesn't penetrate the skin at all. And that's really where I think it's going, where it's not penetrating skin at all. There's no filament, just it's a micro needle. But, I think uh, it'd be amazing, you know, when these trackers can kind of assist you throughout the day. You know, like maybe it says, uh, like, uh, hey, what's up? No 10 minute walk. You know, like <laughs> it, it maybe encourage you, encourages you to walk or you take a picture of your food and it gives you feedback. Dan, you were mentioning a little bit something about that. Um, there are some apps now, I think, or maybe you were mentioning you were working on something I couldn't remember really, but you can maybe take a picture of your food and get the macronutrients and the calorie yeah. count for it. Yeah. So. Right now, you could take pictures of food and you already get the macro breakdown. Uh, we're trying to go to the next step of, that's what we're working on now. Instead of you having it, you know, the goal here is to make this as easy as possible. So most apps right now make you track things and that's where we are as well. The next stage of 
uh, our ability we're trying to develop is we don't want you to track. We want you to just, we want to send to you and say, we saw you at a glucose response. What did you eat? And if you ate something that's fine, that's fine. You don't need to tell us. But when you see these things that are not inherently not good for you, we want to ask you. So it's less in your life. It doesn't really interfere with your life because a lot of times when you track things, it, it's a conscious effort. It's an extra thing you have to do every day and it's bothersome, right? So we want to take the opposite approach where we ask you and we reach out to you when we see something and then you communicate with us instead of you having to put an effort to track things all the time. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. And, and uh, with that, will it give you like an overall calorie amount or would it just kind of assume that, you know, what, how, how would it work? Yeah. So right now, uh, right now it's, you do have to take pictures uh, and that will give you calorie, your macro micronutrient breakdown and glucose response to that food. So that's the point now in the future, uh, it will be stepwise. One is just us asking you. Uh, and then later on over time, uh, it'll also, as you populate what you ate, then it'll also give you more breakdowns, but that's a little bit further out in technology world. Um, so not there yet completely. How did you get, like, how'd you get this kind of thing off the ground? Cause this is a big deal to be able to, you know, have people, you know, walking around with kind of a, ne- a needle in their arm and in talking to other people, um, your company was mentioned many, many times as being superior. Like uh, people were like, yeah, that's, you got to go to Dan. He's got the best uh, product out there. How, I mean, how did you, it's tough to have a technology piece and then to have a medical technology piece, just another sure. giant pain in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'll tell you is it's kind of, Wernie's advice is actually kind of cool. I've, it's like conversation starter. You know, you're at the gym, Wernie's, people come up and ask you all the time, like, what is that? Uh, so, <laughs> people sometimes are afraid of that people are going to judge him, but it's been the opposite where it's just, I get a lot more questions, a lot, make a lot more friends now, even during the pandemic probably, <laughs> than I ever did before. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's interesting, like, what are you wearing in your arm? Uh, and then when you tell them, people get excited. Uh, first, you have to overcome the burden of what is glucose, because most people don't know, <laughs> right? even though we're, it's the main source of energy a lot of times. Uh, but in regard to starting this, it was really a perfect storm. Uh, I, as I was working in some of these hospitals, I saw these rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease going up dramatically over 50, 60 years. Yet we were spending more on healthcare every single year. And I just didn't understand why. And my sister was a type 1 diabetic. So she's actually been wearing these devices for a decade. Uh, but they used to cost $2,000 a month. And the prices started going down dramatically. And since I had this access to all these healthcare professionals, I started asking people, what's going on with these sensors? What's gonna, you know, how are they going to go in price? And the manufacturer is talking about how they're just decreasing dramatically. Just like iPhones were really expensive or smartphones when they first came out. And now all of us have smartphones. So these devices will get to a point where they're going to be $5, $10 a month. And the prices keep dwindling. Uh, so as I knew this is the place I want to get into, funny enough, I was in San Francisco and I was meeting my friend Alex and he happened to be wearing one. And I was like, why are you wearing this? You're not diabetic. And he said, I'm biohacking. And <laughs> he happened to be a software engineer who just sold a company in the tech space. <laughs> and um, I said, hey, is there a way to develop something for this? It's not just for type one diabetics. And he said, yeah, I would love to do that. So I took care of the operational side of getting this uh, from a legal perspective, because you have to write medical prescriptions for this in every single state, uh, trying to get that going. And then he took care of building the software, of combining the glucose data with all these other points that we talked about, track, and combining your sleep data, your stress, your exercise, your fitness tracking, everything you can imagine, all in one place. So 
it's a lot harder than I thought. The legal part ended up being harder than actually the software part, which is interesting. Uh, that's kind of how we brought it together. Does um, I, I was curious because we talked about uh, what you guys would suggest to individuals when they have stress issues. Um, and an obvious thing is like when individuals exercise or maybe they exercise before they have their typical meals of the day, um, their glucose responses are better. Are Along with exercise, if you guys can talk about that, what other lifestyle interventions do you think are pretty solid? Like does an individual getting sunlight, because that's something that people miss out on a lot now because of their daily life, does that make a difference in terms of their glucose responses? What else, what other lifestyle habits do you think are key um, for this to be of benefit? Yeah, absolutely. I think the sunlight is a really great example. And that's another thing we utilize when people are under a lot of stress. Even if you're not under stress, it's a good daily habit to get in the routine of is when you first wake up, get outside and get a little bit of sunshine. And if you're able to, you know, take your shoes off, get your feet in the grass, that is very, very helpful for dampening that stress response. And that definitely makes a difference. A big one that's extremely simple is just making sure you're getting in movement throughout the day. So like you said, if there's an automatic alert of like, you haven't moved in a while, like get up. Those are the type of things that we're saying to clients is like, just move a little bit. And it's so simple. And, and that's the type of recommendation, you know, you read in like a blog where it's like type top five things to do for glucose control. And it's like, is it actually worth it? So the motivation isn't there if you're not really sure if it's making a difference or not, but it definitely is. And even just a 10 minute walk after meals or breaking up sitting, you're sitting for two hours, doing a little bit of activity, it makes significant differences just as much as like actually working out or doing something to that extent, just a 10 minute walk is just as impactful. And so that's another reason the, the biggest benefit a lot of people tell us is that it helps drive behavior change and keep them accountable to these habits because you see that it's actually working. You get this immediate feedback and that's extremely powerful for behavior change and habit building is actually having a reward for your behavior right away and not 10 years from now where you're like, was my walk every day actually making any sort of difference? Instead, I can see it right now. Like, oh, my dinner spike is 20 points lower because I moved for 10 minutes afterwards. So that's a big one um, that I see a lot. Another that's very simple is just the order of your macronutrients at meals. So if you're eating, you know, a mixed macro meal, maybe a steak and white rice, eating that steak first, or at least half of the steak, a few bites of that steak before you dig into the white rice is going to make a very significant impact. And that's something that's super, super simple. So we're all about the low hanging fruits. What can we do that's easy and going to make a very meaningful impact? And that's things like moving and the order of your macros, getting out, getting a little bit of sunshine. So things like that um, are very simple and even standing after meals. So if people are working from home, find a setup where you can stand a little bit, where you can prop your laptop up and stand. It, it looks like you guys are standing right now. I'm not really sure. Yeah, but yeah, it, it makes a big difference. Like make sure we're not just in a seated position all day long. This actually impacts glucose. So it can be really simple things. Um, another one is just making sure we don't have any nutrient deficiencies. So there's a few key nutrients that if we're falling short on that, it impacts our ability to metabolize carbohydrates and glucose and keep optimal ranges. 
the biggest one is vitamin D, which also comes with the sunshine. So if we're not getting that adequate vitamin D levels, and even if you are, you know, you might still need supplementation, making sure you're measuring this annually. That's a big one that can have a massive impact on glucose metabolism. Um, zinc, chromium, magnesium, and thiamine are the other big ones that we want to pay attention to. So just making sure you're getting a nutrient dense diet and trying to see if there's any areas you might be falling short is something that we can look at and, and pay attention to as well. I will tell you that one of the things I've discovered is, uh, is that muscle just people always argue, is it better to go for a run or is it better build muscle and building muscle is significantly better for you from a glucose control response because you're creating a bigger tank to put the gas into uh, versus there's only so much glucose you can burn when you run. I hear you're just creating more and more opportunity for you to digest more glucose and carbohydrates. So building muscle is just an extremely good way to improve your metabolic health. And number two is I found a fascinating, I used to go run all the time and Carrie's tell me, but I would sit, I would eat and I would sit and work or work and I'd run my five miles at night. Mm -hmm. uh, and that run was giving me less benefit than just walking 10 minutes after three meals. So I found that interesting because I thought, hey, I'm burning all these calories. I'm running. I'm doing way more movement. But it was just once a day versus now I don't even run. I just go my 10, 15 minute walk after every single meal three times a day. And it's easier. Uh, it's easier to make that as a habit for most common folks. Uh, and also bigger benefit health wise, which is fascinating. I'm so surprised by that. I think one of the major things when you think about that, you know, if we were to think about, you know, what exercise can you burn the most calories with? You know, like, what can we do in the gym that could burn the most amount of calories? Well, you could say, I don't know, maybe like a clean and jerk or or maybe uh, if you're talking about body weight, maybe a burpee. Right. Like costs you a lot of energy. I've even seen people do burpees into like a pull up. Like that's mm -hmm. a lot of movement. Um, but how long can you do that for? You know, and that's where you start to peel things back and you're like. Oh, yeah. That's why people have been talking about jumping ropes since the beginning of time. You know, that's why people have been talking about jumping jacks. That's why people have been talking about walking. I mean, how much walking you walk three times every day for 15 minutes. That might be further than the one three mile run that you do that you get hyped up about on that one day because you just watched David Goggins video. You're all pumped up and excited, but then you're really sore. And then, you know, the next day a bunch of crap happens and you don't get to it and so on. And so you're only kind of getting it like once a week. You, you, we're going to throw out a lot of excuses to ourselves, but a walk is so easy to convince yourself of. Like, come on, dude, like just go. And we do the same thing with weights. You know, we'll just say, all right, we'll just go in there for about 10, 15 minutes and do some like biceps or shoulders or whatever the exercises are that you enjoy, that you like. Do those kind of uh, low hanging fruit type things that that you're going to find uh, some enjoyment from. And then normally, once you're in there, you're going to talk yourself into doing a little bit more because you're not going to probably go to the gym and just do like three sets of something and leave. You'll probably want to do uh, a little bit more than that. We found that to be really helpful for us as well. What have you guys seen when it comes to, let's say uh, you're going to have, um, I don't know, some rice, but you had, um, you know, a supplement with it, like uh, some fish oil or some berberine or alpha lipoic acid, or have you seen any of these kind of uh, quote unquote glucose disposal agents uh, be of any value to help assist in the carbohydrates ending up in the right spot? Uh, or have you, what do you notice with any of that? Yeah, I would say out of all of the supplements, berberine definitely works the best. 
Um, this works for, for many people very well. For most people, it tends to have a cumulative effect. And so it's like if you're taking it daily after a couple weeks, you start to see glucose levels go down. Those post those after meal spikes go down and your average values go down. So sometimes people will take it like every once in a while randomly with meals and we might not see as much of an effect as if you're taking it consistently, but it definitely does work. And it seems to be very low risk. Um, there's not many potential downsides except for maybe some GI distress, which if you take it with a meal should take care of that. So that works really, really well. It, it has similar mechanisms as metformin, which is the most commonly prescribed oral medication for diabetes. So they actually work in very similar ways. Alpha-lipoic acid definitely also has a lot of evidence. Um, a lot of the research is done in like IV administration, which is not really accessible to most people. But we have had people take oral supplementation. Um, usually, I think like 600 milligrams a day is enough to make an effect. Other than that, the, the two supplements that seem to have fairly good success are chromium and bitter melon. Um, so those both seem to work as well. And there's actually quite a few supplements on the market that combine all of these things as like a glucose optimizer. Um, and they seem to work pretty well, but berberine is our go-to recommendation for most people. And metformin uh, works through a mechanism um, almost as if your body exercised a little bit. Is that correct? Or am I way off on that? Hmm. Yeah, so it stimulates um, AMPK, which is also stimulated when you're working out. And so there's there's a research study that came out recently because a lot of people were taking metformin for like longevity right. reasons, um, no no glucose issues, and just taking it to like maximize lifespan. And there was a research study that came out suggesting that metformin might actually blunt the beneficial effects of exercise because it's mimicking this, and so potentially to be on the safer side if you're taking metformin or also berberine that has these similar mechanisms, taking it at opposite times as your workout to make sure you're not blunting that effect. It doesn't seem to have an effect in diabetics who are traditionally taking metformin because the benefit of the glucose regulation probably outweighs that blunting, but this effect is seen in like healthy individuals. So with berberine and metformin to play it on the safe side, we recommend taking it like as far apart from your workout as possible. So berberine isn't necessarily, is it taken, you said taken with meals, but like if you're going to work out in the evening, you would take berberine in the morning. Is that kind of how you would suggest people do it? Yeah, pretty much. And so for the most point, like 500 to a thousand milligrams a day um, and just take it with meals if you have GI distress. So if you're, you know, working out early in the morning, you want to take it like as far away and late at night and you're not eating later at night, it's most likely fine on an empty stomach. It doesn't affect absorption or the mechanisms. It's just if you're having that GI distress, but um, I would separate it. Yeah. If you're working out in the evening, I would take the, the berberine in the morning. And then you mentioned something when you were talking about lifestyle habits as far as eating protein or like you use the example of steak and rice and starting with the steak. And like Mark has mentioned that too, um, eating protein as the first part of the meal, partially because it makes you full and you end up eating less overall. Mm -hmm. But if, if calories are equated, right, if it's like a 
1,000 calorie meal. Um, and uh, one of those meals has a lot of heavy carbohydrates, very minimal protein. And one of those meals is more protein, lower carbohydrates. Uh, is that generally like, is that just kind of a rule of thumb that you will kind of want to go for in those meals? Like always have protein first. Is it because of the calories? Is it because of the satiation? Are there other things going on there that we don't know? It's, it's because we tend to have a more dramatic glucose response to carbohydrates on an empty stomach. Um, so especially first thing in the morning, if your first meal of the day is having carbohydrates in it, I would especially recommend eating the protein first then because there's nothing in your system to slow down the digestion of those carbohydrates. So if you're eating carbohydrates on an empty stomach, you see that immediate spike because it's quick digestion, especially if it's a more refined carbohydrate. And the protein and fat works as well, but protein seems to work a little bit better, just slows down that digestion and blunts that glucose response. So you're not seeing as high of a peak. And so if you just ate an hour before, it probably doesn't matter that much if you eat your protein first because you have some food in your system but especially like at that first meal of the day, or if you're doing like longer stretches in between your meals, I would highly recommend always eating some protein or carbohydrates for, or protein or fat first. We have a lot of people who are always like, while I'm cooking, I'm kind of like snacking on things. So they're like, I had like five grapes while I was cooking and I had this huge glucose spike and they're like, what was going on? My meal was just protein. I was like, it's probably just the grapes. Like try eating those five grapes at the end of your meal. And then there's no glucose response at all. So that's rather common. A lot of things we're snacking on tend to be carbohydrate rich. So it's like crackers, chips, like fruit that's easily accessible. And that's just a simple thing that could have a pretty detrimental effect that we just swap that around and it makes a big difference. I threw down a protein shake before I went and got sushi last night. Perfect. Worked out great. That's why I'm so jacked today. (laughs) Um, When it comes to the different uh, types of whey protein, you know, you got like a whey protein isolate, a hydrolyzed whey, a casein protein. Have you guys noticed any differences with uh, how these might potentially uh, spike your glucose levels? And if so, is there a negative side side effect of that? Yeah, I haven't seen between the specific types of whey or protein supplements a difference in glucose levels unless you're crossing that threshold of need and you start to see that gluconeogenesis. There's definitely, and I'm sure you're aware of this, plenty of research indicating that whey is more insulinogenic, meaning it produces a higher insulin response than other types of protein. But Insulin and glucose usually match up, but they don't always perfectly match up. And this is one of those instances where you might be seeing steady glucose values, but insulin could be spiking in the background from something like just pure whey protein. Um, so I don't usually see a nuance in glucose at that level. So my, I guess, the situation with like having a protein shake, like, uh, like say if I'm going to have one this morning, if I don't have something else with it, like even just a small piece of bread or something, my stomach gets very upset um, in my head. It, and you guys will probably think it's funny, but it just makes sense to me that like if I have a protein shake too fast, my body doesn't know what the heck's happening. But if I throw a slice of bread in there to soak it up, it's like, oh, let's break this down. Does that make any sense to you guys? 
It could be related to the fact that the protein shake is just in a liquid form, mm-hmm. which is just so easy to digest. So that could be just flooding it straight to your GI system. It doesn't need to do any work in the stomach to slow down that digestion. And so sometimes if we have a liquid form of anything, whether it's protein or like carbohydrates in a smoothie, that can pull different types of like osmosis. So it might pull water if you're moving too quickly through the GI system, which could cause some gastro distress. So that would be my hypothesis is just the fact that it's liquid, not necessarily the fact that it's protein. Kind of on this topic, we talk a lot about fasting on this podcast. And, um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned if you if your stomach's empty, it's probably a good idea to have protein first before you have, you know, your other foods. But outside of that, is there anything that you guys have noticed that's beneficial with with as far as, you know, time restricted feeding is concerned or potentially detrimental as far as your glucose is concerned when when doing that? Yeah, so I would say overall, it's a very good practice to be doing time-restricted eating for almost everybody. Um, So this generally has a very positive effect. And for the most part, that early time-restricted eating works better for most folks. So as we kind of discussed earlier, it's it's not everybody, but I would say at least 75% of people do not tolerate food and especially carbohydrates as well later in the evening as when they do during the day. So this is the concept of chrononutrition, which is basically all of these processes are working on a circadian rhythm, just like you know our sleep-wake cycle is a circadian rhythm. So insulin tends to be most produced and most our cells are most insulin sensitive during daylight hours and we have the least insulin sensitivity in the middle of the night because that's not a time traditionally where we're eating and need to be in a fed state and so for a lot of people that earlier time restricted eating window results in significantly better glucose values than if it's shifted later or if you're just kind of grazing all day long If we're grazing in between meals, then we're never getting back down into normal fasting glucose levels. We're never getting into that fasted state. And instead, we're just having these like high floating average glucose values, and that can be really detrimental. So far as a general rule of thumb, we recommend at least the like 16-8 if you can do it where you know, you're eating just in an eight hour window. And if we're seeing those higher glucose values while you're sleeping, we try shifting that earlier if possible. Some people, you know, the schedules don't allow it. And if you're going to have that later night meal, being more conscious about it being low carb is really helpful for a lot of people. And if you have insulin resistance, honestly, the most beneficial thing we have found to bringing those glucose levels down is, is playing around with extended fast. So I don't inherently think you need to do it if you're insulin sensitive and everything's good to go. Um, but if you're insulin resistant, it's, it's the most powerful tool that we've seen for actually reversing that insulin resistance and getting glucose values back down into normal is doing extended fast. So we rely on that pretty heavy if we're seeing like more extreme insulin resistance. And I think here, gender differences actually play a big role for extended mm-hmm. fast. And it's not something you want to talk about, Carrie, a little bit. Yeah, that's another discrepancy we've seen with gender, which we weren't expecting. And the research is really muddy. You know, you always hear people that are like, women shouldn't fast, like it's bad for women. And it was kind of this gray area. Um, And now we've seen thousands of people and certain patterns have become apparent. One is that the 16-8, like normal daily intermittent fasting works really well for almost everybody, women included. So unless you're like 
pregnant and breastfeeding or struggling with an eating disorder or really, really underweight, I'm pretty comfortable recommending the 16-8 to everybody, women included. So feel much more confident about that now. But the discrepancy came with the extended fasting, particularly the people who were doing extended fasting are the few people who probably don't need to be doing it. So it's the people who are want to be like on top of everything and they're really lean. Um, they're exercising for two hours a day. You know, they're already calorie restricting and then they're doing a four day fast once a month. And during that, you know, 24 hour mark, we should see glucose in that fasting range, 70 to 90, and it's starting to creep up getting up to hundred. And at day th three, we're like at 120. And it's like, this is a stress response. Your body is sending signals that you're under too much stress because you have all these other hormetic stressors going on. And the extended fast is just too much, but we never see that effect in men. So this never. is something where even if a male is really healthy, all these other hormetic stressors going on, they almost always tolerate these extended fasts pretty well. Um, and the discrepancy is specifically with women, starting with like an OMAD style of eating and then on to extended fasts. But if you have insulin resistance, if you're overweight, um, if you're not exercising a lot, then the extended fast works really, really well for both male and female. You know, along with that, um, I was wondering about like, uh, as you become healthier, right? As you become more insulin sensitive, uh, your response to these certain foods gets better, I'd assume. But <laughs> is it possible to, uh, like you mentioned, I think, I don't know if it was you that you, you get a massive spike from blueberries. Is it possible like over months of eating more and more blueberries <laughs> that you would get a lesser response or do you just, do you just avoid that food altogether? Yeah. Like, can't we evolve? <laughs> can't we just eat more of the same food? <laughs> like, is that possible? Um, I'm not sure. I think there's <laughs> probably just foods we just don't tolerate as well for whatever reason. A lot of it points to maybe the microbiome of maybe there's some sort of, you know, like species going on that aren't tolerating or breaking down this type of food as well. But I know a lot of customers will have or like my favorite carb in the world is, you know, this thing, maybe it's butternut squash or whatever. They're like, I eat it every single day. I love it. And then they try with the CGM and it's like the one thing they spike to. And it's like, uh, but they've been eating it for so much that I'm like, I don't really know if they, maybe it was way higher at one point in time. And now it's just in like normal high range. But I think there's just certain foods we don't respond as well to. But of course, if you do have insulin resistance and you become more insulin sensitive, you're going to be able to tolerate some of these foods better than you might have originally. But if you're already insulin sensitive, there might just be the foods that don't work as well. And, and you can still have them and we can hack them a little bit. Maybe, you know, you take a supplement with that food or you eat it in a smaller portion or right after a workout is the best time. It's, you have a food you spike to and you just absolutely love it. Eating it after a workout is going to be your best option because it's when you're most insulin sensitive, you're going to have the most blunted glucose response. So there's ways to hack it a little bit. If you're like, I'm, I still want to include this in my diet. Like, how do I do this in the best way possible? We can play with it. But I think at the end of the day, there's just foods. We and there's something differently. really fascinating about that. We actually, the foods that were, that are good and bad for us change over time. So if you are a normal woman and then you have a pregnancy afterward, during pregnancy and after the pregnancy, the food that you might've been good for you might not be so good anymore and vice versa. Also your microbiome changes as you eat certain things over your lifetime, your microbiome changes. Maybe now you eat a lot more probiotics and prebiotics that'll affect your microbiome. So again, the things that were considered that might've caused you to spike a lot may not 
and vice versa, so which is fascinating, right? So today I can be eating blueberries and they're terrible. Five years down the line, they're actually fine for me based on how the environment and things I have been eating over a long time have changed the way a body responds to them. What about a post-workout? Um, what have you guys seen, you know, be the most effective for some people that you have that might be athletes that want to try to re- recover from the workout and what is happening post-workout? Like, you know, why are we encouraged to eat, you know, more carbohydrates and have like a protein shake post-workout? What, what is, what is, where does some of those recommendations come from and what have you guys seen? Yeah. So during a workout, most likely you're burning through some of those glycogen stores. So if you're doing something higher intensity, so heavy strength training or like a hit workout sprints, you're most likely fueling it with glucose. So it's glycolytic workout. You might even see a spike in your glucose while you're doing that workout. And that's perfectly okay and perfectly normal because it's just the glucose fueling the workout. But if you see that spike, that most likely meant that you depleted some of your glucose stores. And so if you want to then be able to have that storage form of glucose ready and available to fuel your next workout, you might want to replenish it afterwards. And we're most insulin sensitive and we're most um, able to replenish that glycogen at a fast rate right after the workout. So often if you're doing these higher intensity exercises, we want some of that carbohydrates and some of the protein right after the meal. And this is something where I think it's again, personal and differs between people, but it's really interesting for a lot of our athletes to toy with is the best refueling strategy, depending on what workout they did and what foods they respond better to, because you can see really quickly if you're overshooting your carbohydrate needs and, you know, overestimating how many carbohydrates you might need after that meal and seeing a a spike in return, you should see, you know, pretty gradual glucose response after that meal. If you just burned through all that glucose, it should be going straight into immediate need. And so sometimes a little goes a long way for some people. So we can see like, are you tanking? Is your glucose continuing to go down and, and you're having an energy crash? Maybe you're not refueling enough. Or maybe you're seeing a huge glucose spike and you're overdoing it. So we can kind of tweak on the best refueling strategy for somebody. But um, for most people doing like strength training and HIIT workouts, any type of high intensity where you want something right after that workout. And I think data here is really key. We have a lot of people who are ultra marathon runners. They ride bikes long distance, 30, 40, 50 miles. And a lot of times what they're doing now is – they ride, 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 and all of a sudden they have this bomb because they just crash, and they just have a big uh, goo gel. Uh, and it's a big, just all it is is spiking their glucose, so they get energy again. Now they're able to say, "Oh, I'm gonna have this is gonna happen an hour from now or 30 minutes from now." Mm-hmm. They're able to time it so they never have the crash in the first place, which is fascinating, I think, and it helps them perform at a higher level. You know, Dan, at the beginning, yeah, we just oh, go ahead. Sorry, we just had a, like one of our customers was the first person to do an ultra marathon on carnivore diet. And he felt comfortable doing it because he was wearing the CGM. And he was like, I can see if, you know, I'm actually have enough fuel available, even though he wasn't taking any carbohydrates in. And he could see, like, am I actually fat adapted enough or I'm not going to bonk anymore like he was in the beginning of training. So I thought that was really interesting that he used that tool, not just to fine tune his performance, but also feel confident that he was going to be able to execute on what he was trying to do. Is there any trend in terms of like seeing where your glucose levels are and knowing you are ready to perform? Like, can you like, you know, you mentioned that 
they can tell right before they're going to bonk. So they know when they need to refuel during their ride. But is there a way to see, okay, when I'm at this level, I'm pretty good to perform here, or is there really no correlation there? Yeah. And if it's something that is like a glycolytic activity, like Mm -hmm. a heavy strength training or something like that, you could, you know, you could see like, I just ate something and I'm timing when it's going at its peak for when I'm going to have the most available immediate energy. Uh, you could certainly do that. It would be a little like nuanced and probably like exact, like, I don't know if it, how practical that is, yeah. but you certainly could do it. Especially if you're like, you know, competing at a high level and those little nuances make a difference. Um, it's possible for sure. What is a, uh, what about alcohol? What is alcohol? Do what have you guys seen with that? You know, you got this monitor on and you're probably trying to be good, but you have it on for two weeks and you probably start to mess up a little bit here and there. What what's the impact of alcohol? Yeah, alcohol is interesting. Um, It depends on the type of alcohol. So if you're consuming something like a heavy beer or a cocktail, you're going to see a glucose spike because it's mostly carbohydrates. But for something like um, dry wine or liquor Often in the moment, people actually see a glucose dip, so a decrease in glucose. And this is because, again, back to oxidative priority, if there's alcohol in your system, the first thing your body wants to do is metabolize and get rid of that alcohol because it's a toxin. And so normally the liver is regulating what's going on in our glucose. But if you have glucose come in that doesn't have any carbohydrates in it, the liver prioritizes that and we see a glucose dip. But then often we'll see the next day, and this differs for everyone. Some people see this with one glass only, and some people see this after like four glasses of wine or maybe shots of liquor, that they'll see the next day their fasting and average glucose levels are higher. And this just comes back to the impairment the alcohol is having on your liver and its ability to maintain normal glucose levels the next day. So for some people, you know, maybe a glass of wine at dinner leads to a nice little decrease and actually blunts some of the response of their dinner and they say no effect the next day. And then for some people, just one glass of wine can kind of cause detriments the next day. So it's a little bit variable, but multiple glasses is definitely going to have an effect the next day on your glucose level for everybody. And then what about sleep? When your sleep is impaired, um, what kind of impact does this have on our glucose? Have you guys seen? Yeah. So sleep would be considered a chronic stressor is how I describe it to people. So just like if you have chronic psychological stress, this is causing your body to pump out more glucose and also reduce its insulin sensitivity. So we see this in two different ways. One is if you're not getting enough deep sleep. So maybe you were in bed for eight hours, but it was disrupted sleep. You have a baby or construction or something going on. You're waking up a lot. These people are going to have poor glucose values the next day. So, you know, normally maybe you respond perfectly well to oatmeal. You might have twice as high of a glucose spike if you had a bad night of sleep. So a lot of people, if it's like, if we're not sleeping well, we might want to compensate the next day by having lower carbohydrates or making sure we make it to the gym for eating easy exercise, movement. You might want to compensate for some of these things. Um, The other one is just shortened sleep. So you could get really deep, amazing sleep, but if you're only sleeping for four hours, it's going to have the same effect as the interrupted sleep. And it goes both directions as well. So poor night of sleep means worse glucose values the next day. But also if you have higher glucose values going into the night, 
you're going to get worse quality sleep. So it seems that these higher glucose values interrupt our ability to get into that deep level of sleep. Um, and it's kind of almost like putting us in this fight or flight mode. And we're just in this lighter level of sleep if we're going to bed with higher glucose values. So bi-directional effect there. And about like, how long does it take for somebody to catch up on a bad night of sleep? Like, have you guys monitored anything like that where it's like, okay, this person had, you know, on Tuesday they had a bad night of sleep and it wasn't until like Saturday till their glucose and everything was back on track. Yeah. For an insulin sensitive person, if you have one bad night of sleep and then you have a good night of sleep the next day, it could be fixed the next day. So it could be very immediate where you had a terrible glucose day because you slept awful, but then we're good to go once you're back on track. So it seems to be quite reversible. Um, if you're insulin resistant, it's a little more lagging because the body's just kind of struggling to main glucose in the first place. Uh, but it can be a, a quick fix. If you have a bad night of sleep, you can be back to normal if you fix that rather quickly. The hard part becomes if, if you're a new parent and you always have a bad night of sleep. So that's when we have to pull on other levers. You know, we have a, a lot of, of customers like that. And you, the truth is you're not going to get good sleep for a while, right? And so we have to pull on these other levers and like be more meticulous about your diet and be more meticulous about fasting and things like that, because unfortunately the sleep is not going to improve anytime soon. So those are factors where we just have to compensate in other ways. Does the CGM track heart rate too while you're asleep or no? No, it does not. But a lot of people who are wearing devices that track heart rate, heart rate, we can sync that and correlate that. So a lot of people are stacking that on top of each other and, and we're seeing interesting observations. Um, and that's where it's like, people are like, okay, I knew when I had a glass of tequila before bed that my heart rate got messed up, but I was ignoring that. And now I also see that my glucose rises to it. And it's just another data point where it's like, okay, this is not working very well for me, but they're certainly correlated. And in the beginning of the podcast, you guys mentioned the idea of like metabolic flexibility. When most people hear that, they just think, oh, I can eat a bunch of different foods and feel great. Um, but what exactly does that mean as far as, you know, your definition is concerned? And is metabolic flexibility something that people want to aim for or does it really matter? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so metabolic flexibility at its core is just the capability of a organism or even a single cell to adapt what fuel you're burning based on what fuel is available. So if you're giving it fat, can burn fat perfectly fine, everything's good to go. If you're giving it glucose, can burn carbs, glucose, we're good to go. Um, and be able to easily switch between these fuel sources. I like to describe it as like our body is like a car and gasoline, you know, is like the glucose, and that's our primary energy source. But if you're metabolically flexible, it's like a hybrid car. If we're going at low speeds, we're, we're as much energy efficient as possible. And if we're going up on the highway, we're switching fuels to be as energy efficient as possible. And so I believe that metabolic flexibility is the ultimate goal. And that's what I'm really trying to work on with a lot of these people is being able to switch between fuel sources easily because all metabolic disorders are characterized by an inability to do this process, this quick switching. Most Americans are so carbohydrate dependent and glucose dependent that they have a very, very hard time utilizing fuel as an efficient 
are utilizing fat as an efficient fuel source. So most of the time in traditional standard American diet, that's the problem we're working on, which then maybe let's try cutting back the carbs. Let's try becoming, you know, fat adapted, working on generating ketones, and then we can switch between fuel sources more easily in the future. But I also see the opposite problem start to occur where somebody's become so keto obsessed <laughs> that they've been doing strict keto for four years and they've never utilized glucose as a fuel source in that time frame that they now have become enabled to metabolize glucose as a fuel. So these people I would consider metabolically inflexible to carbohydrates. And if you gave them a bunch of carbohydrates, they're going to have a massive glucose spike because their body no longer is used to processing this. So sometimes we're working on the opposite direction is maybe like a cyclical keto or some, some carb up days or intermittent ketosis, depending on, you know, their goals and their lifestyle. But I really believe it's, it's the ultimate goal because then it allows flexibility. You know, if you are mostly keto most of the time, but you want to go have sushi or you want to go have birthday cake, you can do that. And it's not going to like totally destroy everything that's going on. So I think it allows flexibility in lifestyle, but it also is at the core of preventing some of these metabolic conditions because they're all characterized by this poor crosstalk and poor energy utilization. Thank you guys uh, so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about uh, the continued glucose monitoring? Thanks, Mark. Uh, they can go to Nutrisense.io. That's N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E.io. Uh, thank you for your time, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank thanks. You. Have a great thank rest you of your day. So much. That was awesome. That was great. I like mm-hmm. that it's, uh, you know, I like that the information is just, it's black and white, right? Like you, you're not, because sometimes like if you get something tracked, you don't know, like I know for myself, I was tracking my sleep. It actually made me feel more tired because <laughs> I don't really get great sleep often. Um, but this piece actually seems like it would be great for me to line up with my sleep because then I would be able to say, oh, okay, well, you know, when I'm having bad nights of sleep, it's negatively impacting me this way. And I can clearly see it. It's not just a feeling, right? It's an actual thing. And, and I think, whoa, whoa. hey, now, <laughs> I think that's, uh, you know, kind of the key factor is that you're, you know, you want to deal with uh, metrics, you know, rather than trying to um, just say, oh, yeah, I feel this or I feel that. Or we say it all the time, right? Like, oh, I don't respond well to that. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know. I mean, I, I guess maybe we, we sort of know, but we kind of don't know. I mean, what you mentioned about the protein, mm-hmm. that's really interesting, because what if you just mix your protein with less water? Maybe you don't end up with the same problem. Yeah. So lately what I've been doing actually um, is like I'll mix it with um, some protein, uh, a little bit of uh, PB2, some oatmeal and some blueberries. And I have that as like my pre-workout meal. Mm -hmm. It's been great. Like I feel freaking awesome when I have it. So that's all I'm going to keep doing. But I think what she said, I think you've said it before too. It's like, it's probably just because you're having too much protein too fast. Right. Like where in nature are you going to (laughs) have... you know, whatever, 25 grams of protein in four seconds. Right. Right. Okay. I guess I won't, you know, like, so that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, just having something there just to solidify it to me just feels better. But what she said is like, Oh, you're probably just digesting it slower. 
makes makes a lot of sense because that's kind of how I've been feeling. Yeah, I think anybody that's going to drink a protein shake, I think you should drink it as if you were eating a protein bar. You know, have it have it take a little bit of time. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be really slow, mm-hmm. but just have it just like each be, each drink is like a bite, right? Like yeah, would, yeah. Just have it <laughs> have it take a couple minutes. I mean, yeah. you don't want to just nail it, you know. And I think same thing with carbohydrate drinks and stuff like that too. I mean. I don't think there's there's probably really nothing wrong with drinking orange juice, you know, like literally there's really nothing, you know, their their glucose monitor would show that it would spike a lot. Mm-hmm. But what if you were to drink it over the course of three minutes or five minutes rather than just to, you know, slam it, what you want to do because it tastes really good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do it with some crushed ice, though. That's that's a lot of fun. Mm. And then I just got a message. So the day that this episode releases, October 15th, uh, we are having a 20% off all powerlifting federation approved gear at markbellslingshot.com. Wow. Yeah, so that's knee sleeves, wrist wraps, singlets, and much, much more, plus free worldwide shipping. So sorry, Mark, I don't think you, were, you approved that one, but we're, we went. You're trying to give shit away. We went behind your back and decided to give everyone 20% off today and today only. That sale ends at midnight today, October 15th. You went behind my back, in front of my back. You reached around. Did the whole reach around. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I said something the other day and my wife, she's like, yeah, that's a reach around. And I was like, no, No, I'm like, wait, I'm like, I'm like, no. What's the context? <laughs> I, I, can't, this. I can't, I can't even, I can't even remember, but like, she just, she was like, no, that's it, But we weren't talking about anything like that mm-hmm. at all. And so, so she's like, yeah, that's a reach around. I'm like, I don't think that you yeah. understand what you're saying. My, my, my she's <laughs> like, no, I do. I was like, uh. one of my absolute favorite, like, uh, scenes in a movie is from 40 year old virgin oh, when they're just sitting there going back and forth. Like, you know how I know you're gay. You know how I know you're gay. Yeah. He's like, you know how I know you're gay. He's like, why? Because you did a reach around as you mounted me. <laughs> <laughs> I just ended it right there. Right. Yeah. What? It's so Bro. funny to me. How do we always get here? How does it happen to us? We had, oh, man. We had such an intelligent conversation. This is literally like three minutes after it ended. Three minutes after it ended, we're talking about a reach around. Oh, when we're left alone. To How our do we own do this? And they're watching this, trying to share it out with their families. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they're yeah, like, totally. oh, now I got to tell them that these guys are kind of stupid and just to ignore the end. They're going to be like, hey, like at, at around, I don't know, an hour and a half in, just go ahead and just hit stop. Like, don't even bother. <laughs> This was YouTube, by the way. You, you guys noticed that, but this, you bring it out. You bring it out in us, though. Yeah, I have fun with it too. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. I, but this device is actually super powerful. Let's bring it back real yeah, quick. Yeah, yeah. It's really great. How like you can have a meal and literally like open up your phone and you can see how much it's spiking, it's right? And 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 like the effects that it has on your sleep. Like this is way better than what a like a whoop will give you some information. Your Apple right. Watch will give you some some information. But nothing like this. No, this is crazy. Yeah, and then the ketone, ketone monitoring in the future. Um, the lactic acid thing. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be huge. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. That's really, really cool. I mean, they're learning. Like, they're, they continue to learn a lot more about lactic acid. And I remember going to a seminar a long time ago. And the guy that ran the seminar was like, lactic acid, you know, isn't what people think it is at the moment. He's like, you watch. It'll be a supplement someday. And, I, and everyone was like. What's he talking about like lactic acid hurts, you know, but uh, I guess lactic. Acid, I don't know much about it, so I'm not even going to say, but I, I just thought that that was interesting. And then now we're starting to hear more about the like beneficial effects of lactic acid and what it can actually yeah. do. 
So it's just, I don't know. It, all this stuff is really interesting. Um, I, I like that. Um, I like that Dan and Kara were very, um, they weren't dogmatic. You could tell in their, you know, in, in what they were saying, they weren't like, Hey, you spike glucose, you're getting fat. You spike glucose, you're getting disease. What they were saying is, Hey, this is what we're seeing. And this could potentially be dangerous if you do it over a long period of time. And I know we touched upon calories for a minute there. And we, I want to make it clear that we're not saying that calories don't matter. The, the overall amount of food that you eat, it's always going to have an impact. And, but I think what happens though is some people they get behind, they, they might be heavy from the time they're a child. <clears throat> and then maybe as they get older, maybe they're 18, 19 years old, they start to run into trouble with sleeping. They, you know, maybe just have bad dietary habits in general. And then they're like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to work on losing some weight. And so they exercise and they try to find a caloric deficit and they just really struggle. And maybe they're not going low enough to get to the caloric deficit. But what happens is I think their metabolism is so screwed up that they have to get to an amount of food um, that's just not achievable for them at the moment. And so it's going to take a long time for them to swing all that back around. But if you can monitor something with a glucose monitor or if you can start to strength train to build a little bit of muscle mass to do some of the stuff they mentioned, the 10-minute walks, um, maybe you do cut back on carbohydrates so you can allow your metabolism to start swinging in a different direction then you'll probably be able to eat more at a certain point and still lose weight consistently over a period of time. So I just, I find all that to be really fascinating because I know there's a lot of people that want to make changes and they're trying to make changes, but they're like, they try for seven days or eight days, which I know isn't a long time, but it feels like you're in fucking prison mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're trying for the first time and you don't have experience doing it. And you're like, I, I can't go any lower than 1200 calories. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And then the effects of vitamin D, it's even like, like the fact that that was the number one supplement I think that they mentioned, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's huge. Like we've been hearing way more about vitamin D and like the gut and all that type of stuff. And it's, it's crazy how much more people are learning about how beneficial that is. And it's cheap. Mm -hmm. And it's the correlation uh, with the coronavirus and mm -hmm. stuff too. D3. I mean, there's, there's not enough evidence to really pull it all together. I don't think at the moment, but it, I mean, it also just appears that people that have higher vitamin D are just healthier in general. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're going to be able to fight off viruses and colds and things like that. But uh, yeah. What if just getting in the sun and maybe supplementing with a little bit of vitamin D here and there, like, you know, what if that's a major, major factor uh, in your body composition, in your overall health, is it like that much to ask that you go on Amazon or grab some vitamin D3 on your way out of Costco or something like that? Like, it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem like that big of an ask. It doesn't seem like that, that tough of a thing to do. Yeah. And those, ca those, uh, gel caps are so small. They're tiny. Yeah, They're right. so easy to take. I, I hear people, I, I can't take vitamins. Like, oh, okay, you're a child. But these ones are super easy. <laughs> I just get frustrated with one person in particular. She's she's on top of her game, but she's just like, oh, I don't like taking vitamins. Like, Well, I think, you know, when it comes to uh, supplements, too, you can also look up, you know, you can go online, you can look up, like, what foods have these vitamins oh, in them. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and so um, I don't know all the different stuff that has vitamin D in it, but I believe that dairy is a pretty good source of vitamin D, but I might be a little tricky. You might need like raw dairy. Yeah. I, I don't know, but you know, just 
th- that's always a good way. Like if you need more calcium or if you need more whatever it is, usually the way you absorb it through your nutrition is going to be superior anyway uh, than uh, than just taking a supplement. But the supplements can help sometimes. So you might want to try to look into both. Yeah, um, I was curious. I, I wanted to follow up on when she said, um, when Kara said about stepping outside barefoot. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I, I've I've heard of that before. But yeah, earthing, grounding. Yeah, that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Just I don't know. It's just it hits different when somebody's like this knowledgeable and like, oh, yeah. okay. Like I think it was like Dave Asprey was big on it, mm. and then when you know him and Joe Rogan had their falling out, it was like all right, everything he says, I'm going to listen to, but I'll have skeptical hippo eyes. Got a falling out. Uh, they just got into like a battle on got, the show. Yeah, no, because uh, they were selling bulletproof coffee on on it, like the whole thing, and then uh, it just it got weird. I, I don't remember exactly what happened. You know, Dave Asprey claimed that he like invented it, and then he didn't because it. I mean, buttered coffee's been around a while. Yeah, and again, this is all off of a very cloudy memory, off of not the Dave, best night. Dave of sleep. Asprey is. Uh, very uh opinionated and from what i recall they kind of they kind of got into an argument like on the show and uh asprey was saying that his coffee is the only coffee that doesn't have like mold in it and stuff like that yes because it was single origin coffee and rogan was kind of like dude that's kind of bullshit you know and they're just Mm -hmm. going back and forth and asprey was i thought it was great because dave asprey most people would be like hey i'm on joe rogan's show like i'm just gonna chill Mm. And he didn't. He was yeah. like, no, this is what it was just because that's how strong his beliefs were. And I think that's I think that's kind of cool. But Dave Asprey is hard, has a tough guy to get a read on sometimes because he is so smart mm-hmm. and he says some crazy stuff where you're like, is he just trying to sell me on something or is he speaking? To, and I, I don't think he needs to sell you on anything any further. I mean, he's he's got, you know, multiple multi-million dollar businesses. So, you know, that that can't be the heart of what. I've had great conversations with him. He shared a lot of information with me before. So it's, I just think he's just different. You know, he's, uh, he's got that musk. Like, yeah. He's Elon like Elon musk. musk of like nutrition or something like that. Right. And I really enjoy that, uh, that bulletproof coffee restaurant place. Oh, that place right amazing. around the corner yeah. from Gold's. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Good. Yeah. How cool would that be if there was one down the street? Oh, dude, I'd be there every day. I just got done kind of not bashing, but like not speaking highly of them, but I'd be there right now. <laughs> mm. That place is good. And uh, what about Dutch Bros going up down the street? So I got to know exactly oh, where it is. Down here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really pumped for that. I'm actually very excited. We need that. Sean to open up like food places too, right? <laughs> Man. We need to get him on that. Are you inside? Like drive through, drive through poke places or something. Ooh, that'd be dope. <laughs> Are you supplementing Burberry right now? I am. Do you like, that's you something tell, you do commonly? Can, can you tell? Maybe. Uh, you know, um, Gabrielle uh, pointed it out to me a while back, and then um, I recommended it to my mother-in-law, and then when I was looking up, because she's diabetic, but when I was looking it up more, um, I was like, oh, maybe that would help, because I want to start to eat more carbs, and I was like, mm-hmm. I, and then as I looked into it, I was like, well, it doesn't seem like it hurts anything. Um, berberine is pretty strong, though, too, so, um, you know, trying to get the right dosage I think is important, but I think it usually comes in like 500 milligrams, like 500 milligrams, two or three times a day should be, you know, would be uh, more than enough. But Tony huge also makes a product, yeah. um, which is just a supplement mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's called Slin, but that has some berberine in it and it has a bunch of other stuff that helps, 
helps you to kind of, I guess, it's a absorb yeah. carbohydrates. I guess you'd say they call it like officially like a carb partitioner. Yeah, and then when you, I like the product a lot. <laughs> Me too. I um, like it a lot. I've when been, you were talking about um, lactic acid, lactic acid being a supplement, and how like no, we actually want more of it. Mm-hmm. He also has the uh, arachidonic acid, right? Which you know, if you're not careful, like you, it'll make it's you contra- sore. Controversial, yeah. Yeah, if if you, what yeah, does it do? It just makes you like more inflamed. Hmm. but yeah, like seems... where you want to have it though like yeah. if your if your muscles are sore and they don't get inflamed they're not going to really repair and grow yeah so is it something you take post uh, you can do post but i mean you can do pre or post i would always say take it post because i don't know i get in my own head and i'm like oh i'm getting tired so of the acid from a muscle standpoint i believe that what she was pointing out on the show she was saying that uh metformin kind of mimics uh exercise in a way but it might it might have a negative impact on like growth from the things i've heard and the things that i've looked into uh berberine wouldn't have that same impact it wouldn't have that same negative impact because it's controlling your glucose i think through a slightly different mechanism Mm. so i don't know i don't believe that there's anything to worry about in terms of like taking it like around your workout i don't think there's a much concern with that that's and this from like ron and Tony Huge, who, you know, I would refer to more for, like, specific lifting stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I've been utilizing, um, I've been having some carbohydrates in my workouts. I've been having some, uh, like, liquid carbs, like, during a training session. You know, I get, I get maybe halfway through a workout, and I'll have a little bit of carbohydrates during the training session. If I don't have carbohydrates, I might have some EAAs, some uh, essential amino acids mm-hmm. during the training session. And, you know, I don't know if it's... I'm not sure if it's the aminos. I'm not sure if it's the carbs. I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, just the fact that there's like sodium and potassium and electrolytes in a lot of these things. And I'm using the element and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if it's that, but I just feel great in the workout, like midway through the workout. I'm like, Oh, here we go. Like this is, this is kind of right where I need to be. Sometimes right where you're like, I just kind of want to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I start to feel a little bit more like, Oh, this is perfect. Like I, I want to just, I want to just keep going. The other day I was doing some legs and I got up to like six plates on the belt squat and I was pushing that pretty hard. And I was like, Oh, and just, I don't feel like adding any more weight to this belt squat. So I was like, I'm just going to end here. I did like 45 reps. (laughs) I did like 20 with kind of a close stance or moderate stance. And I did another 20 with like a wider stance and then just kind of pushed it for a couple extra reps and, Everybody was like, how many reps did you do? I was like, I was like, I don't know. The other guy was like, I counted. He's like, I think you did like 45 reps. Damn. Wow. Like, Shit. But I think, you know, some of that is, is helping, you know, mm-hmm. it's just giving you that little extra. I mean, I like to train that way anyway. I like to kill myself a little bit here and there, but just giving you that little extra push during your training session. Yeah. Do you notice that you get more vascular when you take element, uh, electrolytes like mid workout? Oh, salt. Yeah. So, you know, any salt, but yeah. Um, no, that helps a lot. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just feels like you got more behind you. Uh, there's no other way to describe it, but I feel like you got a little, a little extra, <laughs> a little extra, yeah, a little extra junk in the trunk. Yeah, it's crazy because like it's just, it just seems like it's salt. It doesn't make sense, but yeah, it kind of fuels, it fuels you and pushes you a little bit harder. Yeah, it's crazy. No, it, it, it's it's great. I love the stuff. Yeah. Speaking of. Today, yeah, this episode is the first time that they're sponsoring a full episode. Oh, yeah. So, nice. 
drinklmnt.com slash power project. Uh, make sure you guys check out the uh, the value bundles because that's like buying three boxes and getting a fourth one for free. Again, that's at drinklmnt.com slash power project. Shout out to them and a huge thank you. Make sure you guys show support for them. Um, what else you guys got going on today? By the way, just real short, I like to dump the chocolate into my mm-hmm. protein or into my coffee. That's what I had in this coffee today. It's really good. Uh, I got to grab some of that it's chocolate. It's really good. You I'm might want to try half at first because it is salty. Mm-hmm. So it might add too much salt for mm-hmm. your liking. But I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, the first time I tried it, I did it with protein and the element chocolate flavor. And I, I think I just <clears> did it. It was a little bit too much for me. I got to uh, I gotta throw. I have a glucose monitor from those guys. I need to throw oh, that damn thing on. Nice. I've yes. Been, I've been wanting to, but I just keep kind of forgetting. It's been just sitting in my pantry, and I need to just <laughs> I need to just commit to putting putting the damn thing on. Tell me how that uh, installation process is, because as they were telling me about it, I was like getting a little squeamish. That stuff kind of creeps me out. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna tease them a little bit, but I was like, ah, it was better, you know. But I was gonna be like, oh yeah, you just insert it into your tricep, and then it just crawls up the back of your neck yeah, and, yeah. and goes into your brain and controls you. It, it taps into your taps yeah. into your spine and controls you. The only thing that I'd be concerned about, like not so much because even she said it's like it doesn't really go deep like under the surface or anything. But like if I like put on a shirt and like I just like like kind of yeah. hook, hooks on or something. I don't I wonder if like jiu-jitsu. I don't think it does any of that. I think it's like I think it's as if I think it's as if you had a bandaid on. Yeah, okay. I think it's like that. Do you put something like I, I have to look at it? I'm, I'm sure. wondering if something's over because like I'm, I'm thinking about like using it and then going in jujitsu, uh, like <laughs> with all that friction and all yeah. of that mm-hmm. going over. I wonder. I just wonder. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll have to see one day. Yeah, jujitsu is weird because <laughs> like you know, you, I've heard people talk about like heart rate monitors and stuff for that, and it's like can't figure out where the hell to put mm-hmm. anything because everything gets rubbed on or chafed or moved around or mm-hmm. shuffled around and right i mean you're yeah. rolling on top of each other and everything yeah speaking of uh there was an alien that choked out in sema yesterday yeah that's kind of weird right mm-hmm. yeah it took somebody from another planet to choke you out gave me an rnc and then i woke up in my bed this morning and drove to the podcast mm. kind of weird my, my butt felt kind of weird <laughs> i don't know what's going on i've seen that on south park <laughs> I still haven't seen their uh, their newest one with the pangolin uh, Corona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, it was great. I haven't seen it. Uh, I have to no. watch it too. Yeah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for another show. I guess so. All right, cool. want to take us on out of here, Andrew? I will. Thank you, everybody, for checking out today's episode. And again, a huge shout out and thank you to Element for jumping on board with us. We're really excited to partner up with them. Uh, you guys have heard us talk about them on the podcast uh, in in the past so it only made sense that we'd team up with them uh, again head over to drink lmnt.com slash power project uh i rec- I, I like these citrus salt and sema likes raspberry raspberry yeah yeah that's that's the good stuff there mark likes them all um and uh please make sure you're following the podcast at mark bell's power project on instagram at mb power project on twitter uh if you guys anything stood out to you guys in today's episode let us know down in the comments or hit us up on any of those social media platforms let's get a conversation going Uh, i love hearing from you guys and 
Again, if you guys are listening to us and you screenshot that thing or you, you take a picture of wherever the heck you are listening to it, I'll always reshare them. I really like seeing those. So thank you guys who uh, who have been doing that. Uh, thank you again to everybody that's been reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out a ton. And then, of course, right here on YouTube, hit that thumbs up button because that also helps the channel quite a bit. And then if you guys want, you can follow me at I am Andrew Z. And Sima, where are you at? And Sima Yang on Instagram and YouTube. And Sima Yang on Twitter. Uh, Mark? I think you guys got some great advice today. I think that... Uh that eating that protein first, I think is just something that I don't see why you can't implement it. Sounds uh, easy enough. And uh, oddly enough, I like doing it um, mainly just like from a food preference standpoint, from like a taste perspective, if I had steak and rice, let's say I had like a New York strip or I got a Piedmontese uh, steak. That's pretty lean. I want to eat most of that so that I can enjoy like a good amount of the steak with the rice in combination. Cause like you, I think you guys know what I'm trying to say here is that like you need a certain amount of like veggies or rice to help you get the protein down like easier. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you ate about half the steak, then when you go to eat the steak and rice together, it seems like you have kind of more, more, more rice than you really got. Even like with, uh, you know, just a cup or half a cup of rice, it can kind of go a long way and help you eat it a little bit better. So, I recommend it. Give it, give it a shot. You know, ha- have your protein, uh, you know, before you go out to eat or have your protein um, before you shop. It will help kind of curb your appetite. And then I think from a perspective of helping to manage your glucose, it will assist with that as well. So give that a shot. I'm at Mark Smelly Bell. Strength is never a weakness. Weakness is never strength. Catch you all later.